I mean, this is this is the sort of thing that the EU was built to deal with. So it can be a very positive moment, I think, if we take these steps forward, or it can be, I think it could be dealt very poorly and be seen as a failure in the process of European integration. Rachel Tausenfreund, and this is Post-Pandemic Order, a German Marshall Fund podcast where we discuss how the world was, is, and will be ordered after the pandemic. I have the honor of talking to Manuel Munoz, who is the Secretary of State for Global Spain, one of the leading sort of global politics voices in Spain, and he's also uh, quite the transatlanticist. Between 2015 and 2017, he ran the Transatlantic Relations Program at Harvard University. Secretary Munoz, uh, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, Rachel. It's always a pleasure to do things with the German Marshall Funds. Let's start with Spain. Spain was among the worst hit by the coronavirus crisis in Europe. What, What do you think is behind that? Why did it affects Spain so badly? So that's a very that's a very tough question to answer. And in fact, if you asked any uh, epidemiologist, what they will tell you is that that's one of the big mysteries of their discipline, uh, why certain epidemics and pandemics behave differently in different places. So there's a whole range of factors that impact that, from the porousness of the country or its openness, and it's basically the size of its tourism industry, and we're, we're, we're one of the greatest destinations in terms of tourism in the world, to the geography, the weather, the humidity, the shape of the infrastructure, the population concentration in cities, social customs and norms. You know, in, in Mediterranean countries, we have also a very particular family structure. So there are over 700,000 households in Spain that hold three generations, which also means that contagion within those households very quickly reached people that were particularly vulnerable, um, the elderly particularly. So, so it's a whole range of factors that seem to impact the way a pandemic behaves in different places. It's a very tough question to answer, but it does seem that Spain did have a lot of those factors combined. And, and I think that made, that made the disease particularly vicious in the case of Spain. It's really a shame, and it does seem incredibly complicated to trace these things. I'm from Michigan, for example, which is one of the harder-hit regions in the United States. It's also hard to say why. You are the Secretary of State for Global Spain, which means you sit the uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs. And I assume that means you've sort of seen and observed closely some of the efforts to procure medical equipment from abroad. What can you tell us about that? How did that process work in terms of globally, but also within Spain? So basically the way this was run in Spain was the health ministry had the overarching competence for for procuring materials and supplies. Also the the regional uh, health ministries, so we have these health organizations at the regional level that are very important in Spain, and we have 17 regions, so they also had the capacity to procure materials and, 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 and supplies from different places around the world. The, the role of the foreign ministry was in all of the local markets, we helped the health ministry and the health counselors at the regions to find the right providers and sometimes made connections for them in these markets. In the case of the Chinese market, which was the largest in terms of a supplier for Spain for health products during the crisis, the Chinese government ended up providing a full list of accredited exporters of these uh, of these products. 
And what the Spanish Foreign Ministry did and our embassy in China did was basically go through that list and make sure that all of the purchases that were done in China were done from those providers. So really the weight of the effort was on the health ministry because of the technical nature of most of these purchases. Uh, but we, we supported the effort as much as we could from our embassies and our commercial offices on the ground around the world. Did you experience that as a kind of, you know, crisis response scramble to figure out ways to work between the different ministries and across the world? Or would you say it was sort of another example of processes you have in place in terms of cooperation between the ministries? No, no, no. I mean, the, the, the whole circumstance was very extraordinary. So so the, the international market was totally out of, out of whack. I mean, it was extremely competitive. There was a very high demand for very specific products because this crisis puts pressure on very particular pain points of the health system, right? So in critical care, ventilators and ICU equipment and uh, protective equipment. So it's, it's, a, it's a very particular set of things that, uh, that you need to procure. And very few countries around the world had either a full supply chain within their borders that could substitute imports or had strategic stocks that could basically take on the full brunt of the, of the crisis. So from an international perspective and supply chain perspective, it really was a shock to the system. And we had to build new channels, uh, relationships with new providers in a very stressed uh, market. Nationally, it also meant big changes. So we empowered our health ministry a great deal. We are under a state of alarm in Spain. This is a constitutional set of arrangements that gives the central government extraordinary powers to do certain things. And amongst those things are powers to procure and to establish a set of purchasing criteria and procedures that are, uh, that are extraordinary and that are needed exclusively in times of crisis. So from one difficult decision-making process to another, you are a co-lead of a team that's trying to figure out the best process for relaxing the very strict lockdown that's been in place in Spain. I'd be really interested to know sort of, you know, what are you thinking about? What kind of information are you looking at? How are you making the decisions about what and how and where to relax uh, the measures. So basically, the part of the ministry that I help run contains our director general for strategy and foresight on our policy planning team and, and all of that uh, cluster of teams and work. So at the beginning of the state of alarm, when the general confinement was set up in Spain, this is the 13th of March, almost from that time, I think it was around that date or a day after, something like that, we began studying comparative cases of the management of the disease and of the decontainment or exit strategies in a number of places. Places, fundamentally in East Asia, because that's where they're further up ahead in the in the curve, in the epidemic uh, curve. So we studied the case of Japan, of South Korea, China, Singapore, and also Hong Kong. And we looked at what they'd done right and what they'd done wrong, and also the measures that they were putting into place to exit their lockdown, uh, their lockdown strategies. The only country that had undertaken as drastic measures as, as Spain, Italy, and now many other countries, basically a generalized lockdown was China, but that was only done in a province. And it's it's a very different social and political structure. So so we, we could extract some lessons, but they weren't fully applicable to the situation in Spain. So after we did that study, the Spanish government put together a group of experts, basically epidemiologists, virologists, public health experts, economists, jurists, people with an IR background like myself to try to work out how do we leave, how do we exit the containment. And that's that's almost as hard a problem, if not a harder problem, than the actual lockdown measures, because you have all of these intertwined layers of complexity from the politics to the, of course, the health management and the health care system management piece, the econ, the law and legal arrangements, uh, the international arrangements. So 
Uh, we started working on that and we put together a set of recommendations that were sent to the Council of Ministers and then they were approved as a strategy, a chunk of them were approved, they were incorporated into the final strategy. And the way that Spain is now thinking about this is basically in a number of principles. One, you need to build a very resilient epidemic information system. It's a bit like a sentinel system. We have one for the flu here in Spain, but you need to be able to know the progression of the disease at a very granular level. And you do that through the compiling of information of diagnoses and of ICU occupancy. There are four or five indicators that you can compile in a dashboard. You also need to build and strengthen your critical care capacity across the board in a semi-structured way. So we, we improvise and we build new capacity but we've now recommended that a chunk of that is kept in place. And then you need to bring in a mix of other tools to govern this, from early diagnosis through generalized testing using PCR, to social distancing measures, to the isolation of cases, to the tracking of contacts of cases. So there's there's a whole menu of instruments that we also identified and, and that are now being put into place in Spain. And the last two points here is that we suggested that the process be gradual, which basically means it will be phased. There'll be different phases that different regions will be in. And in each of the phases, you will have greater degrees of openness and mobility within the economy. So that allows you to do a gradual shift towards openness uh, and, and greater mobility and an assessment of the risk as you go along. And the second criteria was asymmetry, which is you do this by regions, because what that means is that you can open regions that would otherwise be forced to wait for other regions where the epidemic is less under control. So you can also face and start opening before that. So those are the basic principles. And the reason why the foreign ministry was so involved in this is the comparative perspective, because we were looking constantly at what others were doing and the lessons learned across the world. There's a much, much richer I think, set of experiences now for other countries that face this than the ones we had in late late March, early April. Yeah, and as you say, sort of now you have a lot of European countries who were in more or less similar positions who are going through these lockdown steps somewhat in parallel. What about in the European level? So as you said, you had to look first to Asia, but is there now a kind of, are there particular places that you're watching really closely, maybe where they made different decisions, for example? Yeah, so, so we've set up at the foreign ministry, we've set up a, a COVID-19 international observatory, which is basically a group of folks at the ministry in contact with 11 or 12 embassies of ours from around the world that are constantly receiving deep dive updates on, on those countries. And they're updating a database that we have on best practices about this. And there are a number of European countries on the, on that list. So we're looking closely at France, at Germany, at Italy, at the UK. And then we're looking at outliers or countries that have followed a somewhat different strategy like Sweden or, you know, Portugal, which was very early and quick in the imposition of, of the lockdown measures. Um, and that's built, that is all distilled into these brief policy briefs, basically policy notes on what these countries are doing. And, and that's, that, that's a good input into our decision making process. But at the end of the day now, I think we're, most of us are landing at roughly the same spot, which is this idea of phased, of asymmetric in terms of geography, having these assessments based on the epidemiological progress every couple of weeks in order to decide whether you progress to another phase or not. And we've also had, by the way, a lot of contact with the task forces working on, on the exit strategies of other European countries. So I'm in close contact with our Italian colleagues, with our Portuguese colleagues, the French, the Germans, the Brits again. So, so that contact 
with other Europeans uh, working on this has been also very useful. And finally, we are in touch with the European Commission, which is trying to set general principles for, has has in fact now issued a document with general principles for the exit strategy so that there's some coherence and alignment across EU member states as we exit, including on the international mobility piece, which I think is going to be the next big issue on the agenda for us. Because if there's something this crisis alters, is mobility. In these processes, so, you know, you got together with all the different kinds of experts and went through the cases and, and turned in these briefs of recommendations of how to do it. And but then I imagine at the next level of decision, at the latest, politics starts to enter into also these decisions about how and where to do the lockdown. Has it been from the beginning a very politicized process? Is it getting harder to make decisions? What does it look like politically? So on the on the process, basically there were clearly two phases. There was one which was much more technical and intellectual, which was basically conducted by this group of experts, and it ended up in these recommendations that were forwarded to the to the Council of Ministers, basically. Once the general strategy was approved, the process entered a second phase, which is now characterized by a, a, a dialogue with our regions, a very strong dialogue with our regions to decide on which measures are applied where and how, and also a very strong and deep sectorial dialogue with um, social actors, basically with business organizations and with labor and with, you know, the, the basically the important interlocutors that we have across sectors. And that's being run fully now by the, administ- by the administration, right? So it's no longer a st- sort of strategy thinking piece with a lot of external uh, experts uh, like the first phase of this was. So there's a lot of detail that is emerging out of those conversations. But I think the fundamental principles are very well aligned with the best practices that I've seen internationally. So, uh, you know, I, I, I think that the process has worked, although it's, it has has had to be completely designed from scratch because I don't think any of our countries has had to deal with a crisis like this in a very, very long time. The rest, uh, the, on, on the politics side of things, it's been a very fractious issue. It's, it's uh, increased tensions in Spain. Spanish politics has been, has been shaken by this. We have a high death toll and an impact on the economy that we're going to have to deal with in the exit phase. So what we're hoping now is that we turn a page on the on the initial phase of this and we work together for the exit. So there's a there's a very important commission in our parliament now working on the reconstruction strategy for our economy as we move out of this crisis. And hopefully out of that, we will see a much stronger consensus emerge as to what to do to rebuild our economy in a more digital, I think, green, inclusive way. Uh, and th- those those are sort of the axis of work that we have moving forward. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's going to be a big project. And in fact, that's almost a perfect transition to reconstruction at the European level, which I wanted to talk to you about, uh, because Spain has been quite prominent in making an early and loud call for a kind of new Marshall Plan for Europe and a reconstruction grants, not loans, at the European level to help countries deal with this crisis. So why do you think Spain came out like it did in the process? Let, let me share a, a thought first, which is, when you look at this crisis, I mean, when, when you look at where the world was before COVID hit us, I think the international order was headed in a very particular direction. Some of us were very worried about that direction, in fact, because it looked like a less multilateral world. It looked like there was a regression in individual freedoms, a weakening of the liberal democratic order in general and of liberal democracy as a form of government itself in many places. So one of the questions that I think we have to ask ourselves is that does this crisis accelerate that process? And does it stall it or does it reverse it? And and on a preliminary analysis, in fact, 
it seems to worsen some of the trends that produce that political fracture in the first place. So it hits particularly hard low-income groups within our society. So about two-thirds of all the jobs that were destroyed in Spain because of the crisis uh, were uh, precarious jobs. So the, these were people that were precariously employed, basically, short-term contracts and others. If you look at the effect of the crisis on the increase of fake news, it's just astonishing, right? I mean, I, I we have data from the EU that about 20% of all the disinformation of the last five years is concentrated in the last month and a half or two months, and it's COVID-related. So this is this is really a boon for, for disinformation. And disinformation is very much behind the rise of populism as well, because it erodes institutional legitimacy. So, so we, so basically, when I think about the economics of all of this, I see that there are two paths ahead of us. There's one that leads to an, an unequal environmentally unsustainable economic recovery. And there's another that we should take. This is this is Spain's position that leads us in a more digital, productive, inclusive, green path. Now, how do you do that? And the details of that is complex, right? But for sure, one of the ways in which we do that in Europe is by having a very strong European response and a very large recovery fund that can be used to invest particularly in sectoral transformation and in moving our economies to these places. Now, this is the positive argument. The negative argument is if we don't do that, um, first of all, social and political fracture will increase, but also for the European project in particular, it poses a very big threat to the single market because it means that the state response will be dependent on fiscal capacity of every state. So you're going to see inequities in the scale and the efficacy of the response across states. And I think that's a real affront to a level playing field in Europe and to very fundamental principles of the European Union. Right. So richer states will be able to help their industries more. Yeah, because we've lifted we've lifted some of the rules of state aid so that we can basically save some some important parts of our economy extraordinarily during the crisis. So if you add to that different fiscal margins, you have a, the perfect recipe basically for a fracturing of the single market. So the latest numbers I've heard talked about in terms of the size of this fund are definitely over 1 trillion, 1.5 trillion something like that, although we're waiting on the details of what the commission will really suggest. From where you sit now at this moment, does it seem like a bit a bigger opportunity for Europe or a bigger risk? It's both things, right? It's a, it's a pivotal moment. I mean, it's a real pivotal moment for the union. It's one of these moments where if we do things right, we move the project forward very significantly. If we fail at this, I think it'll be very hard for us to explain to our citizens that the EU failed to act when it was hit by what is fundamentally an exogenous shock and that asymmetric shock. I mean, this is almost by, it's a textbook case of a type of crisis. It's not originated anywhere in the EU and it affects almost all of the EU countries in very similar ways or it will over time, right? So, I mean, this is this is the sort of thing that the EU was built to deal with. So it can be a very positive moment, I think, if we take these steps forward, or it can be, I think it could be dealt very poorly and be seen as a failure in the process of European integration. Yeah, two stark options. A last question for you in particular, since you're the Secretary of State for Global Spain. You know, as I mentioned, it was Prime Minister Sanchez. His voice was very prominent in kind of positioning this demand for the future of Europe. Some have said this is a sort of sign of a new phase of Spanish global leadership, leadership in the EU and maybe also beyond that. How do you see that? We have, I think, one of the most pro-European governments that we've had in Spain for a long time, although the country has been 
markedly pro-European since the very beginning. Because Europe for Spain means democracy, it means progress, um, economic progress and otherwise. So the Spaniards have been on the whole very pro-European. But we have a government now that is fully committed to moving the project forward on a, on a whole range of issues from security and defense to foreign policy to the economics and the management of the crisis. Uh, so it's a real opportunity, I think, for Spain to play a role here and the prime minister is w- willing to do it. I think if this fund goes through in the scale that was suggested and in the form, in the shape and form that we suggested. So these, this is within the multi-year uh, financial framework and it's uh, unconditional transfers to states and they're non-refundable. So this is, these are budget contributions to states. I think that will have been one of the major steps forward in the European integration project of the last few decades. And, and that's very much a Spanish proposal. I mean, it's not just us, but we were one of the ones that put this forward from the very beginning. We even suggested some of the methodology to fund that fund and to make it a reality. So that, that might be a, a wonderful contribution that we make to this project in the middle of this crisis. It's a silver lining, I think. It's always nice to end on a silver lining, but I'm not going to do that this time because I have one more question for you. Sitting where you sit in global Spain, what do you see in the global future? How do you think this pandemic is going to affect the future of global governance? It's still an open question, but we've we've done some foresight studies on this and, and there seem to be some real pain points on on two or three fronts that are that are significant, right? So the first is that it seems to question the efficacy of multilateralism because national responses have been so prominent. But I think that's a that's a poor reading of the effects of this. Because in fact, it calls for much greater global health governance. And I think it just, it highlights the fact that global health is a, is a global public good very clearly. So we need to take care of it, all of us together. And that means a strengthened WHO and, and others, right? Another, another area where I think there'll be a lot of debate is the idea of reshoring or strategic autonomy, which is linked to your first question about um, supply chains and others and, and strategic stockage. I think there we're going to need to find a balance between having strategic autonomy to face crises like this in the future and not undoing very valuable and, and very hard to substitute supply chains. So there'll be a, there'll be a balance. But I think, I think there's going to be a deep debate about what we do nationally and how do we guarantee the supply of certain things nationally, or in our case, at a European level, and how much we allow to be dependent on international supply chains? So I think that's a, I, th- I think that's going to be another topic. And then the last is the mobility piece. If in the 2007-2008 crisis, the contact point of the crisis on the economy was the financial sector, I'm almost certain that in this crisis, it's the tourism sector, right? It's the international mobility sector. And that's because because opening your international borders becomes a very risky business because it exposes you to the import of cases. And we've seen this in Singapore and in, in Korea, and they've imposed really tough and non-porous borders. I mean, in South Korea, they have an isolation strategy where they, they keep people, some, some of the international travelers for 14 days, isolated in these sort of medical sort of uh, hotels uh, for 14 days, they're given three meals a day. I mean, just imagine a frontier, a border like that for a country like Spain that receives upwards of 80 million people a year in terms as tourists. So we're going to have to have a, a long and, and deep debate about how international mobility is reconfigured. So some of these things, I think, it, are part of the fascinating debate, but also challenging debate about how the world is going to be governed in the COVID era. And we should be looking at these things, not just focusing on the short-term management of the crisis. That's also what we're trying to do over here. 
Post-Pandemic Order is a podcast from the German Marshall Fund of the United States. It's produced and hosted by Julie Smith, Derek Cholet, and me, Rachel Tausenfreund. Zachary Tarrant is, as always, our sound engineer and boss man. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.